this episode is not sponsored by Burger King. You cannot have it your way. No, Karen, I said you can't have it your way. Welcome back to the All-American Program. Sure glad you're back with me today. I sure do hope that you enjoyed last week's episode where we talked about three American presidents. Uh, we talked about their accomplishments. If you didn't listen to the episode, uh, we talked about their accomplishments and their not-so-good accomplishments, um, two of which we talked about how they did more harm to the country that, rather than doing any good. Um, you can catch that episode on the All-American Program. Uh, we are now on Apple Podcasts, so if you have an iPhone, a MacBook, an iPad, uh, or anything of Apple products, you can find it on Apple Podcasts. Uh, if you don't have an Apple phone or any Apple product, you can find it on Spotify, or you can go to the website uh, uh, anchor.com and uh, find me on there. Uh, again, it was the All-American Program. Uh, we currently have about six episodes now. We are just getting into season two of my program. And uh, again, I do apologize for any background noise. Uh, I, As I said in the last episode, I sold my uh, microphone that I used in season one. I'm just using my MacBook built-in microphone I have in this laptop here, so um, I apologize if the audio is not up to par, uh, if there's any background music or any background noise uh, that you may hear. Uh, I will try to put that to a minimal. Um, but anyways, I won't talk too long in my introduction here. Uh, this episode is going to be relatively long. Um, but not boring, uh, but I just want to warn you that it's going to be relatively long, um, based on my notes that I took down for this episode. Uh, it took a long time for these notes to finally come together. I was working on it yesterday. It took me about like an hour and a half to get my first part done, and it took me all morning to get the rest of it done. And now you are here doing the episode. Uh, so again, it's going to be relatively long. I, I'm trying not to, I usually try not to let my episodes go more than uh, an hour and a half long, uh, but I think this one is going to be pushing about two hours. Uh, so if you're on the road or um, if you're at work and you got a lot of time to spare and you can listen to you know the podcast, this is a perfect episode and it's not going to be boring. This is going to be filled with a lot of information. Um, which also, again, uh, is a fun episode. Uh, this episode is going to be talking about uh, three American films, uh, war films, um, two of which were based on books. The third one is not based on a book, but it's based on uh, uh, his life. And actually, uh, three, all three of these uh, films were based on the lives of... Uh, the people we're going to be talking about. So, uh, again, I'm not going to let this go on too long. Uh, so, without further ado, guys, I hope you guys enjoy the episode. We'll be right back.
again, thank you for listening to the All-American Program. Catch us anytime on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Anchor.fm. I realized in the last segment that uh, <laughs> I said Anchor.com, but it's Anchor.fm. If you are interested in making a podcast, then sign up for Anchor. Totally free. Don't have to pay one red cent. Um, that's how I got my program started, and here we are. Um, they can help you with um, producing and um, promoting. And just like I said, we got ours on uh, Spotify, which they automatically do. Uh, you know, like I just recently got my Apple Podcast, which I had to put a little bit of a work into, but it wasn't too bad. So, uh, yeah. So, like I said, guys, uh, I'm going to go ahead and jump right into it. Uh, we're going to be talking about three American films. Um, American war films, that is. And uh, I'm going to go ahead and, and tell you what we're going to be talking about today. Uh, as I said in the introduction, these are movies that are based on um, real people that really went to war. And uh, two of these movies are based off of books. Um, so, the first film we're going to be talking about is Unbroken. Uh, Unbroken is a um, book about a POW soldier in World War II. Um, so, these three movies here are from uh, three different major wars. So, Unbroken is about... Um, it's about World War II. Uh, we were soldiers and Sergeant York. Uh, we were soldiers was about the Vietnam War. And Sergeant York was about uh, World War I. So, uh, again, Unbroken is uh, about a POW soldier named Louis Zamperini. Uh, Unbroken is a biography book written by Laura Hillenbrand. And Angelina Jolie directed the Unbroken movie. Uh, and it's about Zamperini's young life, his Olympic life, and his military life. So, uh, the book and the movie um, talk about his young life as uh, being a menace. Uh, he smoked cigarettes and drank alcohol as a young kid. I think he started smoking cigarettes when he was five. And he started drinking alcohol when he was uh, only seven years old. Um, so, again, this is like back in World War II. This is 1940s. So, it's not like, you know, we had all these laws like we do nowadays where, you know, age is a limit and the, you know, all this crazy stuff. So, you guys know what I'm talking about. Uh, he ran from po the police. If he was ever caught doing anything illegal, he was a thief. Um, pretty much just grew up being a, you know, just a regular juvenile. So... Um, and one thing I forgot to mention is the podcast, this episode, this podcast episode is going to be deferring, um, the movie from the real life events, seeing how accurate they are. And I'm going to be rating them on their accuracy. In my opinion, uh, I'm not an expert. Um, I'm not, no, like I said, I'm not no historian or anything like that. I uh, didn't go to college or anything, so this is just my ratings. These are my opinions, um, but I back them up with the facts that I have written down here. So, 
so this was all depicted in the film. Uh, he was known for his fighting and his stealing. Uh, the movie goes in-depth about, you know, his uh, degeneracy as a, as a young kid. Um, in the movie, he uh, drinks alcohol in these uh, glass bottles, but he paints the, the bottles white so it looks like he's just drinking milk when it's just really some... Uh, some alcohol or some wine. Um, that I don't know if it's true or not. Um, but uh, there are some parts that, you know, from movies that you don't really know if it really happened in real life. There's really no credible sources to say, well, yeah, I did this. And uh, the only person you're going to have to talk to is um, <laughs> the, the, you know, the guy himself. Which unfortunately, Louis Zamperini passed away in 2014. Uh, so, anyway, continuing on here. Uh, so, as I said, uh, Zamperini was a Olympic athlete. Uh, he gave up, but he gave up his bad habits of smoking and drinking to become a track star on his high school's track team in Torrance, California. Uh, his brother Pete Zamperini was also on the track team, which is depicted in the film. Um, what happens in the movie uh, is he was caught drinking some alcohol by uh, a coach uh, under the uh, track track field bleachers, I believe. And he runs out and he runs across the the track field, and the kids just stop. And his brother was out in front, and he just stops and watches him. And then the next scene is uh, him running with uh, Louis Zamperini and trying to get him to uh, be on the track team, so to speak. Um, but this differs from the movie because uh, it never, the real life story never really talks about um, the book, that is. Uh, never talks about him running across and running from, you know, the coach or something. Um, so. Uh, so over the summer, he was so dedicated that he became a fanatical and wouldn't even have a milkshake. So his brother Pete basically convinced him to, uh, again, stop his bad habits from smoking and drinking. And he started running with him and started trying, I guess, training uh, in a way. And, you know, he, I guess he just fell in love with uh, running and he uh, lost weight and he stopped what you know, whatever he was doing uh, that was, you know, illegal, all his, his crimes and stuff like that, uh, basically his thieving. And uh, and he stopped uh, eating the, you know, the fatty foods, the junk food that we know, which is why uh, he said, in quote, uh, he wouldn't even have a milkshake. Uh, so as time went on, uh, he was on the track team during his freshman year of high school. And, uh, and then during his sophomore and uh, senior year, he was undefeated uh, on the track team, which he earned a scholarship at the U University of Southern California, which is known as USC. Uh, he ran in the 5,000 meter race and tied with the record holder, Dom Lash. He then qualified for the Berlin Olympics, Olympics in 1936. 
So, uh, yeah, he went to the 5,000-meter race. He he was offered the 1,500-meter race, but he didn't want to do it. He's He just wanted to do the 5,000-meter race and be in the Olympics. And he tied for first with uh, the record holder from Ohio State, uh, Don Lash. And then, uh, again, he qualified for the Berlin Olympics in Germany in 1936. Um, Zamperini finished 8th place in the 5,000-meter distance event in the Olympics. Uh, his final lap was 56 seconds, which is a record that still hasn't been broken to date. Um, and this part is a little bit um, kind of shocking. I didn't realize this. Um, but actually, Louis Zamperini met Adolf Hitler in a personal meeting, uh, to which Hitler was very impressed with Zamperini's final lap. Hitler told Zamperini, end quote, you're the boy with the fast finish. Um, so this differs from the movie um, a little bit. So the movie does um, show uh, Zamperini his high school track and uh, said that he qualified for the Olympics. Then they then it shows uh, Louis Zamperini and his brother Pete um, basically saying goodbye to each other before Louis goes off into uh, to Berlin. And uh, and again, the movie does show him doing a 5,000 meter race uh, in Berlin. And uh, it shows the 56 uh, second final lap that he did. And it was, again, it's a record that still hasn't been broken by any Olympic athlete. And, uh, but the, but the movie does not show him, uh, meeting with Adolf Hitler. Doesn't show any part of that. Um, so where it kind of cuts off is it starts with Louis Zamperini in the military. And, uh, he is on a, a mission, uh, a bombing mission. And then in between the bombing mission, it cuts off and shows, um, Zamperini's young life. Then it goes to his track and then it goes to the Olympics. But in between there is the, the battle scene of when they're doing the bombing. And, uh, and then after... Uh, after the Olympic event was over and he did a miraculous uh, final lap, uh, that was it for the rest of the Olympic uh, side of his life for the rest of the movie. After that, it was basically just him in the military. So, uh, like I said, the movie did not uh, depict any of that meeting with uh, Hitler, which I... I'm not sure how uh, I feel about that. Uh, I think it would have been cool if they added the Hitler, um, you know, Hitler meeting with Sam Perini. Uh, but again, I don't know if that's such a good idea because we all know about <laughs> about what three or four years later, uh, Hitler decided he was going to take over all of Europe. Um, I think maybe if World War II didn't happen and they still made a movie about Zamperini's uh, life, they would probably do it. But 
Uh, we'll never know. So anyway, moving on. Now we're going on to uh, his um, his military life. So Zamperini enlisted in the United States Air Force in 1941 and was commissioned as a second lieutenant. Uh, Zamperini was stationed in the Pacific Island of Funafuti. I think that's how you pronounce that. Um, <laughs> I typed it and I didn't I didn't bother looking up the pronunciation. There's going to be some parts where I don't know how to pronounce it. Uh, I didn't take the time to <laughs> look up pronunciations. So uh, bear with me on that one. So again, I think that's how you pronounce it, Funafuti. Uh, as a bomber of a B-24 Liberator plane, which the Liberator plane was uh, the most well-known bomber plane in World War II. And uh, everybody loved them. I, I love them. You know, if, <laughs> if there's not one soul out there that loves them, it, uh, I would probably be the only one. And that's perfectly fine with me. Uh, so the bombing mission was in the movie. Uh, is true and had to switch to a different plane after the plane during the mission was severely damaged. So they were attacked by, so in the movie uh, and in real life, they were attacked by a few Japanese uh, planes while they were on the bombing mission. Uh, I believe that they lost a few planes during the mission and their plane had become severely hit, which is true um, in both the movie and the real story. And, uh, and so... Moving on here, uh, so in the movie, it shows that they landed and then they had to go on a rescue mission uh, for another uh, plane that crashed down. And this was true, the rescue mission was true. And uh, so the plane ended up having a malfunction. Um, I think, uh, I think the problem was was it was uh, it was a plane that was used for salvage parts and stuff, uh, so it really wasn't really I don't think really meant for combat, and uh, but they said it passed the inspection and should and should have been good to go, and it turns out it wasn't. Uh, both of the left engines on the plane uh, ended up going out and they crashed into uh, the sea where eight of the 11 crewmen died during the crash. And they crashed about 800 miles south of Oahu. That's a pretty long ways. <laughs> uh, so, uh, Zamperini, uh, Russell Phil, uh, his nickname was Phil, uh, Russell Phillips and Francis uh, McNamara, uh, his nickname was Mac, uh, in the movie, and uh, yeah, in the movie, uh, they just called him Mac and they just called him Phil. Um, but their real names are Russell Phillips and Francis McNamara. Uh, and they were the only survivors, which is depicted in the film. So there was no more, no less uh, them. There were just three of them. Um, so during their, um, during their tenure of being stranded at sea, um, they had to survive by eating two albatrosses, which an albatross is a... Uh, just a type of bird, and they had to eat small sharks and small fish. Um, so in the movie, um, it did. In the movie, um, 
there was a albatross that landed on the uh, raft that they were in, and they grabbed it, and they cut it open, and they tried to eat it. Um, but the stench was like too strong for them to swallow the meat, which I don't know if, uh, I don't know what an albatross smells like or what it tastes like, so I wouldn't know. Um, and they said that they used that the, um, the, the first albatross for the bait for the small fish. And now this part is not shown in the film, uh, but they actually ate two albatrosses. They said the second one wasn't too bad, according to the book. Um, they said that they were able to um, swallow it and, I guess, digest it. Um, but they still had to force it down because the stench wasn't as bad as the first one. Um, which kind of didn't really bother me a, little, a whole lot, but it kind of did because... Uh, in the book, it says that they didn't really eat it. They tried to eat it, but this, like I said, the stench was too strong for them. And, um, but in the movie, it pretty much shows that they ate it. And then a little bit later, they threw up uh, on the water. So uh, not really uh, too bad on that little mistake there. But um, yeah, so that's what happened between the movie and the real story. So, uh, <clears throat> uh, the uh, small sharks and the fish were depicted in the movie. Uh, they just, they, uh, they had a hook and some string and they were able to pull some fish in and then they ate, they ate, uh, I think they ate a few sharks. Uh, they only ate the liver because that's the only edible part of the shark. And so, uh, that was depicted in the movie. They were also attacked by sharks um, a few times. And uh, they were also attacked by a Japanese bomber. Uh, they thought it was a rescue plane. They signaled for it. And then, um, in the movie, it shows the plane turning around. And it got closer, and it got closer, and it got closer. Until, and they just... Just watched it come at them all until uh, it started shooting at them. And when they shot at them, uh, they all jumped out of the raft. And they had to get, they had to get back in the raft quickly because there were sharks everywhere. So it was kind of a lose-lose situation. Do you want to get shot by the bomber or do you want to get eaten by sharks? So, <laughs> um, And then a little bit later... The bomber comes back. They get back in the raft. They didn't get uh, bit by a shark or anything. They all got back in the raft before they did. And the bomber comes back around a second time and shoots at him again. But it shows that uh, Zamperini was the only one to make it out of the raft. Um, he tried pulling both of them out. Um, but he was the only one that fell in the water. And it showed. It was kind of a suspenseful uh, part of the movie. Because it showed the bomber um, shooting at the rafts with um, um, Phillips and McNamara in it. And then uh, the one part I didn't was kind of cheesy about all this was when uh, Samperini fell back in the water. 
and showed the bullets going through the water, and then one ended up striking a shark and killed it, which I think was a little bit cheesy, but I mean, I don't know, it's a Hollywood movie, so. <laughs> So, um, again, uh, it was a, it was a suspenseful part of the movie. Um, probably, there's not a whole lot of suspenseful parts in the movie. Um, it's just basically just action, just action-packed. Um, not a whole lot of suspense. Um... A lot of disgusting scenes, uh, and what I mean by like, disgusting, I don't mean like, you know, make you want to throw up, but it's just, you know, uh, it's one of those, how can you do that, disgusting uh, scenes, so, um, so, McNamara, uh, Mac survived only 33 days before dying of starvation and dehydration, uh, so that's a couple days over one month. Um, while, uh, Phillips and Zamperini survived 47 days at sea before being found and captured by the Japanese near the Marshall Islands. So, uh, Phillips and Zamperini survived 47 days. That's about a, that's about a month and a half. So, um, how in the world that, that, that happened, I'm not sure. Uh, in the movie, they did talk about, uh, they read in the magazine that there was a uh, man, I can't remember what the name was now, um, but he survived 23 days of sea, That's, and it was supposedly a record, and they ended up, or I, I'm not sure if they both did, but uh, Collins, or not Collins, Philip, Phillips, I'm sorry, I keep, for some reason I keep thinking about Phil Collins, um, uh, Phillips, uh, did mention in the movie that they had survived over 23 days and, uh, beating the record and that he was keeping count of the days. So, um, <laughs> so I got, I reckon that's how they know that that's how long they were because of Phillips, um, mentioning how, uh, long they were stuck out there and him keeping count of the days. Um, uh, so, uh, Zamperini and Phillips, again, they were captured by the Japanese by, by this time, uh, they were taken to the, uh, Kawashin Line Atoll, uh, again, I don't know if I pronounced that right, uh, I'm just basically just, uh, sounding out what I see, um, but this was, but this was nicknamed, uh, Execution Island, uh, because nine Marines had already been beheaded there. Um, I read up that at first they were treated, uh, when they were captured, they were treated pretty fairly. They were treated pretty good, um, because they lost about half of their body weight, um, when they were 47 days stuck out at sea, uh, they were taken to a doctor, they were examined, uh, they were eating very well. Um, they figured out that he was, uh, Zamperini was an Olympic athlete and they saw it as an asset uh, to spew pop propaganda if they can get them. And after three days of, uh, being in the Japanese hospital and being treated, that's when they were taken to, uh, the Kwajalein Atoll, 
or Execution Island. And the doctor told them that uh, they don't know if they can, if they're gonna uh, lose their life or not. Basically, what they were told. So uh, that's a little bit of a. I mean, if it were me, I don't know what I would do in that situation. Being treated very good and eating very well, going to the Execution Island, um, where uh, I pretty much know I'm dead. And which they thought they were dead too. They they said that uh, quote that they woke up and thought it was their last day. And it was like that every day. Um, so, but they were both tortured to get military information out of them. Uh, this was depicted in the film. Uh, yes, they were kept in cells. Uh, they were not allowed to talk to each other. Um, and they were starved again. Uh, they were again. They lost. A lot of weight. There were skin and bones, and um, and there was a scene in the movie uh, where Zamperini and uh, Phillips uh, get stripped naked. Uh, just there's no clothes on at all, and um, and they were dump and they were dumping buckets of water onto them, um, and at that point they thought they were going to be. Uh, executed because uh, they thought that I, I, I guarantee you if those were just you know average uh, prisoners um, that they would um, sorry there's the background noise all right <laughs> back to it so uh, anyway so I guarantee if there was if there were just regular uh, Prisoners, if they were just regular Americans, um, didn't have any fame to their name, uh, like Zamperini being an Olympic athlete, um, they would have probably been uh, executed. And uh, Phillips wasn't really a, uh, a star or anything. Uh, I feel like that they took um, Phillips and kept him alive um, to use use him as leverage uh, against Zamperini in case Zamperini didn't want to do anything uh, as far as information or anything goes and which that was depicted in the film as well so um, but after after um, Execution Island was over they were sent to or I'm sorry Zamperini was sent to Amori uh, POW camp um, along the way Phillips and Zamperini were separated so, you know, Phillips went to one camp and Zamperini went to another camp. And I, again, I don't know if I pronounced uh, this POW camp uh, correctly. Um, the, the Amori camp, which, and this is going to be kind of hard to say, um, but it was commanded by uh, Mutsuhiro Watanabe, uh, who was nicknamed the Bird. Um, I don't know. I'm, know if I pronounced his first name correctly but uh, his last name is uh, Watanabe um, so in the movie uh, he was he was a young person um, I'm not I don't know the person's name that's uh, portrayed him but in the movie he was a very young uh, guy but according to the pictures uh, that I've seen of the real the real person, uh, the real Watanabe, uh, he was kind of an older man. He was probably about 
mid thirties, uh, early forties, maybe. Um, so definitely a difference there between the movie and the real life thing. Um, and Watanabe was very, very abusive. Um, that was, I mean, that's one of the main things that was shown in the movie was how much, um, Watanabe would just beat on prisoners and particularly Zamperini. And this was, this was true. Um, but uh, Watanabe said that his nor his orders was to never beat and torture the prisoners. He, he when he took over as the commanding officer of the Amori camp, uh, he was never ordered to torture and you know beat the ever living crap out of the prisoners. Uh, he said he said uh, in a 1998 interview that it was because and quote his personal feelings he treated the prisoners strictly as enemies of Japan. Um, and in the movie, um, this was true, uh, Watanabe told the prisoners they were enemies of Japan and would be treated accordingly. He said that a few times. And uh, also it is true that in the movie, it was mentioned that uh, Watanabe was, uh, uh, was wealthy, he came from a wealthy family, and he uh, applied to be an officer in the uh, Japanese Empire, but it was turned down. And uh, that was mentioned in the movie, but it didn't really show uh, him being um, him beating the prisoners for that. But although um, in the real life uh, story, uh, it says that Watanabe was actually jealous of American officers, which included Zamperini because Zamperini was a second lieutenant, and he was very jealous of them, so he particularly beat those officers, and which is why, which is one of the reasons why he beat uh, Zamperini uh, all the time. Uh, there was a scene in the movie um, where uh, there was a commander that was a POW uh, commander of the United States, and it was uh, Commander Fitzgerald. He was a real person that was actually kept in the same camp as Louis Zamperini. And uh, in the movie, it was shown that Zamperini actually notices um, Commander Fitzgerald's fingernails uh, literally cut off. And um, I can't remember what Zamperini said to him, but uh, I'm not sure if he said anything. I, I think he just noticed and they were and then they uh, locked eyes and. Uh, Fitzgerald said that they were trying to get information out of me and that he didn't give them any information no matter how bad they tortured him, which was actually true. Uh, yeah, Fitzgerald was actually severely tortured and had his fingernails removed by the Japanese to get information out of him. Um, there were some other things that the Japanese did to him to get information. Um, they held his, they held his uh, mouth closed and poured water down his nose so that it would have so that he would eventually go unconscious. Um, and they stuck little, uh, little, I guess little needles or something uh, under the, under his fingernails, and which was part of the removal process. Uh, honestly, I don't know how I would react in that situation. Um, having my fingernails removed at the way they did, um, <laughs> and having water shoved up my nose. I mean, I can't, I cannot stand you know, just swimming around in the lake or a pool 
and water goes up my nose. I already can't stand that, but I can't imagine having my mouth held closed and water being poured straight down my nose and uh, eventually go unconscious. I can't imagine what that feels like. I don't know if I would have broke before then or after uh, <laughs> the or the water thing. Uh, that is absolutely crazy to even think about. So, uh, so in the movie, it was shown that Zamperini was actually taken to Tokyo, where he learned that back in the United States, he was presumed killed in action after a year uh, of the plane crash. Uh, NBC posted that Louis Zamperini was dead, and uh, Radio Tokyo took notice of it, and they brought and they learned that he was in a POW camp. And they brought him into, they brought him into the station, uh, to where he was actually uh, granted the opportunity to read his own message on uh, a live radio broadcast to let his family know, and in, and uh, I guess the military to know that he was alive and in a POW camp. Um. Yeah. So. Uh, it is true, but some parts of what he said on the broadcast uh, in the movie was false. Um, Zamperini was given another chance to talk on the radio, but he had, but he had to read a pre-written propaganda letter to and say it on the radio broadcast. Uh, Zamperini refused to say it and was sent back to the POW camp. Um, in the movie, it shows that Zamperini was uh, given the second opportunity, uh, to which he turned down almost immediately. But the real story is when he was sent back to the he was sent back to the POW camp after the first broadcast where he told his family he was okay uh, and being held captive as a POW and um, oh, sorry I lost my train of thought here um, yeah so he sent back to the POW camp after he told his family in the first broadcast that he was uh, fine. Um, and then, after some time, he was brought back uh, to Radio Tokyo to say that stuff, uh, to you know, spread propaganda and become a propagandist. Uh, so, yeah, so he was brought back after a short period of time to say what, he, um, what was on that pre-written message. Sorry, I'm getting sidetracked here. <laughs> I do apologize. Um, so, in the in the movie, uh, in a short scene, um, American soldiers were shown well dressed and eating in the same diner. Uh, if they sh if they shared the same propaganda propaganda message that was given uh, to Zamperini. Um, so again, in the movie, it showed that Zamperini had the second opportunity uh, to say what he. Uh, what was on that pre-written message uh, almost immediately. Uh, it did not show him going back to the camp um, after the first, after, yeah, after the first radio broadcast and then he got brought back and then that's when he was told, actually he was, he actually had a second uh, letter that he'd written out that he was going to read to himself but it was at the last minute that the radio broadcast said, no, you're going to read our pre-written message uh, and spread propaganda. And so while they were talking in the diner, uh, as Samperini was eating, there was a few, um, uh, and this is, this is going back to the movie, 
Um, there was uh, about three American soldiers sitting at a table eating. They were very well dressed. They were in uniform. And the radio broadcast people uh, pointed to them and said, you know, there's nothing hard about this. And said those people and said that those soldiers over there are doing the same thing and they're living well. And uh, but again, Zamperini refused to. Um, in real in the real story, uh, Zamperini actually met the soldiers. Uh, there were a group of Australian soldiers and American soldiers um, who were POWs, but they were spreading propaganda and um, basically doing what the Japanese told them to do. And so, in in exchange for their freedom, I guess, um, I guess from the POW camp at least. Um, so basically they would have, so basically, yeah, so basically they were com committing treason, uh, for their freedom from the POW camp. Uh, uh, Zamperini met them again and he said, uh, uh, he tried to shake their hands, but the group was too ashamed to make eye contact with them. So, uh, yeah, I would be too. I mean, I don't know about y'all, but. Again, if I was in that situation, I don't know what I would do. I don't know if I would enjoy being at a PW, POW camp and being tortured and beat uh, almost to death every single day. Um, and if, honestly, I don't know if I was given the opportunity to um, you know, be free of uh, committing treason at the same time. Uh, I don't know if I would do that. That's such a hard decision. I hope I wouldn't have to do that. Um, I, I hope I don't ever have to be in that position uh, to test myself. Um, honestly, I don't think it's a coward thing that those guys that did that. I don't think it's a coward thing that they did that. Um, at least for the ones that were being beaten. If you voluntarily committed treason and gave you know information to the enemy, then yeah, you're a coward. But as far as like being a POW camper and being beaten every day and on the verge of starvation and dying from dehydration, uh, working to death, uh, and you have the opportunity to, you know, not live in those conditions. Um, I honestly don't think that those people that took that opportunity are cowards, if that makes any sense. Um, so anyway, moving on here. I got about 12 minutes left for my recording here. Um, so I'm going to try to push this on and continue here. And we can get on to the next segment. Um, I do apologize for getting a little bit off track. Uh, so just bear with me. Um, so um, in the movie, this was, this was actually a big deal. Uh, in the movie, Watanabe... Uh, punish Zamperini for refusing to share propaganda for the Japanese by having all the prisoners line up and each one of them punching Zamperini in the face. So after uh, Zamperini told the radio broadcast, no, I'm not going to spread your propaganda and, you know, say these things about America, um, he was brought back to the POW camp. And again, in the movie, um, Watanabe took it as uh, he, he, just, I guess he just took it personal and he had uh, every prisoner line up and each one um, 
took turns punching him in the face. They didn't want to, but they had to because there was no, there wasn't any other choice. Um, but the problem is in the real story that didn't happen entirely. Uh, so Zamperini was punched in the face by almost all the prisoners, um, in the camp, but it wasn't for declining to share propaganda. Uh, it was because Zamperini, along with a few others, uh, were accused of stealing fish. And so... Watamani thought, I guess, the correct way to um, teach them a lesson is to have every single prisoner um, line up and punch every one of them uh, that were accused in the face. And it was said that they were each punched in the face about 220 times. And I don't know how I would feel after being punched 220 times in the face um, <laughs> most people can't go more than five times in the face before they just start collapsing um, which I'm sure that uh, they were collapsed and they were unconscious because that's the way it was uh, portrayed in the movies um, or yeah in the movie uh, Zamprini was unconscious and they had to hold him up uh, so that the rest of the prisoners can still take a punch at him until all of them uh, had their turn and there was no more left to take the turn to punch him in the face. Um, but also another thing was was in the movie, um, Commander Fitzgerald was actually the first in line to punch uh, Zamperini in the face, and he told Watanabe that he wouldn't he wouldn't do that. Um, because they just don't do that. And, uh, Watanabe, uh, obviously didn't like that, uh, disobeying him. So he ordered some of the guards to bring out, uh, Phillips and he brought him out and he set him at, uh, Zamprini's feet. And if, uh, Fitzgerald or any of the other prisoners refused to punch him in the face, then Phillips would be beaten uh, with uh, Watanabe's uh, club. And so I'm not going to get into too far on the movie. I don't want to spoil the entire thing. Um, but that part was not true. Uh, Phillips was never at the Amori camp where Watanabe was. Uh, it was said that he was supposed to be in a better camp. Um, I can't remember the name of it. But it was supposed to be a uh, one of the one of the best, um, or one of the better, not the best, but one of the better POW camps. Um, and there really wasn't too much documentation on Phillips to whether or not he was treated uh, fairly, or if he was treated like Samperini and beaten almost every single day. Uh, Watanabe was a very, very, very twisted person. Um, the prisoners. Uh, said that he uh, would have sexual desires and to satisfy his sexual desires um, he would take a prisoner and just be on him and that would satisfy him. Um, so that's, I mean, to me that's probably the most, that was about as twisted as you can get. Uh, Zamperini was actually used as a guinea pig for experiments. Uh, they would 
they would uh, inject uh, some stuff into him, and he would tell them how he was feeling. Uh, and the only time they stopped was when he uh, told them he was fixing to pass out. So there was a 65-year-old prisoner that Watanabe tied up uh, to a tree for several days. Uh, he actually ordered uh, one of the other prisoners to report to him so that Watanabe can punch him in the face every single day for three weeks. Um, and I'm sure there's a lot more than that. He, um, there was a scene in the movie which was also true. Um, uh, Watanabe came in and he um, beat Zamperini with the belt. But it wasn't like he was just taking the leather part of the belt. He was beating him with the belt buckle. And the belt buckle was hitting him on the side of the head. And it uh, knocked him unconscious. And it, it deafened. I think he was hitting him on the left side. So his, de his left ear uh, was deaf for several weeks. Uh, so, that, I mean, that just tells you uh, some of the twisted stuff that uh, the bird... Or Watanabe um, <laughs> did the Zamperini and the other soldiers, and it was, and also I don't understand it uh, is they said that Watanabe would start crying, uh, he was he would howl and he would drool, and then there was times where he would uh, feel really guilty and bad about what he did. He would honest he would um, he would come up to a prisoner and he would hug them. And he would promise them that he would never beat another prisoner ever again. And he would give them things like uh, candy or some food or whatever type of food it was. And then the next day he went back to beating prisoners. So very, very sick, twisted individual, um, if I do say so myself. Um, hopefully he's not like that anymore because as far as I know, he's still alive. Um, I'm not too sure on that. Again, there's not a whole lot of information on him either. Um, so one of the one of the major scenes of the movie was when Watanabe had um, um, Zamperini actually held up a uh, a six foot board in the air uh, above his shoulders. And uh, in the movie, he says if he drops it, um, to shoot the Zamperini if he dropped it. I told the guard that. Uh, but that wasn't entirely true. Uh, Watanabe actually told one of the guards to hit Zamperini with, uh, with his gun instead of shooting him. So that differs from the movie. The movie says to, to shoot Zamperini uh, while uh, the real-life Watanabe told the guard to sh uh, hit him with his gun. Which, in some ways, I can understand that to get, you know, a better audience. And, it's, uh, to, you know, more suspenseful because the scene was a very powerful scene. Uh, that's what I think. Uh, so, uh, Watanabe did charge Zamperini with anger after he held the board for about 37 minutes. Uh, Watanabe actually mocked him and didn't think he was going to do it and uh, laughed at him and everything. Um, but Zamperini actually held that thing in the state and the condition that he was, uh, was absolutely remarkable for him to actually hold a board like that for about 37 minutes. Um, it's, 
I mean, he was already weak. He was uh, out at that point. He had to have been out of strength. Um, just walking around like most of them had to have been walking around like zombies uh, from the lack of sleep and the lack of uh, nutrition. And for him to hold a board like that again, that's absolutely remarkable. And it made Watanabe very mad. And he charged him and he hit him. And when he hit him, uh, the board actually struck Zamperini in the head and Zamperini got um, uh, got knocked unconscious, which this differs from the movie because in the movie, um, Watanabe does charge him, but he hits him in the stomach and the board drops to the ground. It doesn't drop on his head. Uh, it drops on his legs, I think, because he fell down and dropped on his legs that the movie uh, depicts. And so, um, and then Watanabe... Uh, just uh, beats him unconscious. So uh, both sides are right. He, uh, uh, Zamprini was knocked unconscious, um, but it's a different type. It's a different type of being knocked unconscious. So um, yep, gonna actually my time is up here. I'm gonna be back in just a second. Uh, just hang with me guys. Uh, like I said, I'm trying to get this episode, uh, drawn by pretty quickly, but also making it fun for you guys so that you guys can actually watch these movies and give you guys enough information on them. Uh, I, I know this contains spoilers, but it's the kind of spoilers that make, will make you want to watch the movies even more. Um, because these are not, these are older movies. So, uh, I think. This, this movie was released in 2014. We Were Soldiers was like 2004, something like that. And Sergeant York was like 1941. So hopefully this will uh, encourage you guys that are listening to uh, watch these movies because they are absolutely great movies. I love them. Okay, back to it. Uh, I want to throw a little disclaimer. I'm going to be very quick here because I'm already at about an hour I'm recording. So, uh, I, like I said, I want to try to push two hours and I'm not even done with the first segment yet. So I'm going to try to push through this as quick as possible so you guys don't get bored. So, uh, anyway, so a little disclaimer. Um, I'm not a Joe Rogan. I'm not a Glenn Beck. Uh, I love both of them. Uh, it's pretty much why I made a podcast uh, program, because I like Joe Rogan. Uh, I like Glenn Beck a lot more. I've listened to him for years. Um, but I don't po talk politics like Glenn Beck. I get my politics from him, but I don't talk about politics. Um, that's more of his criteria. Uh, he knows more about politics, way more politics than I do. I'm only 20 years old, and he's... Uh, still young so <laughs> um but anyway so i apologize for my uh stutter uh saying uh a lot uh, you probably have already caught notice of that by now i know i have it annoys me i wish i can stop doing that i try i try not to um like right there uh, I, I try not to i try not to be joe biden uh, <laughs> but um I think about it during the episode. I'll, I'm just like, I got to stop doing this. Uh, but I can't. 
I can't stop. I'm trying to, you know, catch up on what I'm doing here and read what I got uh, on my notes here, and it just comes out, and I don't notice it until the recording's already over, and I've already recorded 30 minutes, and I can't really delete it. I can delete it, but I would have to do the entire re-recording re, uh, uh, all over again. I don't, I don't want to do that. Uh, it's, it takes a long time to um, edit these episodes and put them together and everything and, and record. Uh, recording takes up a, pretty much most of the time. But um, saying all of that and then not liking it and then you have to delete it and remake it for, and then spend another 30 minutes talking about the same thing that you just talked about, it's, uh, it's very discouraging. So I just kind of push through it. Um, and hope that everybody that listens kind of understands where I'm coming from. Uh, like I said, I'm not a Joe Rogan or Glenn Beck that can just sit there and talk and talk and talk and not uh, have any mistakes. Uh, I know Glenn Beck does. Uh, I, I listen, but I don't uh, really hear it all that much from Joe Rogan. I mean, Joe Rogan's been on TV. Um, he has his hit podcast show and all this other stuff, so he, he doesn't really make a lot of mistakes. I'm not saying that Glenn Beck is not a professional, but um, you know, because Glenn Beck has been doing it longer than Joe Rogan has. Uh, Glenn Beck has also been on TV. He's been on Fox News. Um, like I said, he has his own program now, but I've just noticed that uh, Glenn Beck makes a little bit more mistakes than Joe Rogan, but not, that, uh, not to downgrade uh, any of the two. Uh, I'm just simply saying that I'm not them and I can't control uh, how I talk during the episode. So uh, just bear with me. I do apologize for that. So we're already three and a half minutes in. Uh, and I'm almost done with this. I got one more thing to talk about. And I'm going to go over my rating and why. So um, so like in the film, uh, the prisoners were taken to uh, the Hakor River to bathe uh, but then uh, they were to be executed by the guards. Uh, this was a real-life event that was supposed to happen. Uh, the commander of the uh, camp, and I, I don't think I mentioned this, but um, actually Zamperini was actually taken to three uh, POW camps, which was Execution Island, uh, the Amora, and there was, not, there was a third one. I, I cannot pronounce it. That's, that's most likely why I didn't put it in here. Uh, I cannot pronounce that name whatsoever. I tried. Um, but so to get a little rundown of what happened, um, Watanabe was, uh, transferred from, uh, Amori POW camp to a different one. And then several months later, the entire camp, um, had to mobilize because the allies were getting so close because they were only, uh, so far from Tokyo and the allies were getting closer and closer and they had to mobilize the, uh, POWs to a different camp and transfer them, uh, which is what happened. Well, it just so happens that Sam Perini and uh, the rest of the POWs that he was with got transferred to the same uh, camp that Watanabe was transferred to. So Sam Perini thought his nightmare was over. He didn't have to deal with uh, the third anymore. He didn't have to take the beat, you know, the ruthless beatings that uh, he took by him anymore. And then a couple months later, uh, he just gets sent to the same camp that uh, his tormentor was uh, now at. So the nightmares um, came back. 
So, um, anyway, so this part here, what I'm talking about uh, is uh, the new camp, the third camp that Zamperini was in. Uh, again, uh, the, the war was coming to a close. The camp commander uh, that was not uh, Watanabe, it was someone else, uh, addressed the camp and said that the war was coming to an end and that they invited them to bathe into the um, the Hakora River because this was a uh, this was a working camp. Uh, they worked. Uh, they were um, digging and uh, doing coal work. So they were so their clothes and their skin were just pitch black. They couldn't they couldn't take showers. They couldn't bathe or nothing. So their skin was just uh, pitch black from the coal that they were working on. And this was depicted in the movie as well. Um, this is what I like about the movie so much is because the characters, all of the characters were so much into it. Um, I think Angelina Jolie did a really good job of directing the movie because um, um, Jack O'Connell stars as Louis Zamperini and uh, there's not, actually there's not uh, one person that I recognize from the photo. It's not like, you know, it's a very world famous actor. It's not Brad Pitt. It's not Russell Crowe. It's not any of those guys that are starring in this movie. It's just a bunch of uh, people that are rarely heard of uh, before this movie. And so, uh, and these guys did an excellent job. Uh, they really looked the part uh, when they were starving and uh, especially when Zamprini and uh, Phillips were uh, stuck out at sea and um, they lost all that weight. They really looked like as if they were really stranded at sea. I mean, they were, they just looked skin and bones. And I think, again, I think Angelina Jolie did a really good job on that. That's why I like this movie so much is because it really depicted what the, what they were going through, uh, starvation, dehydration, and, and the, uh, the torment and torture that they had to go through. Um, so, and, uh, again, um, they were covered in coal and they were just, I mean, they just looked black. They were just pitch black from the coal that they'd been working in and every prisoner looked like this. And as you, again, it was, it looked like this in the movie. So if you can imagine in your head, you can also watch the movie and it's, and it's so real. It's unbelievable. And, uh, they, uh, were taken down to the Hakora river. They were going to bathe, and then they were and then they were surrounded by uh, almost all the Japanese guards. They were ready for execution. Uh, prisoners were just so out of uh, energy and anything that you would try to attempt to escape and fight back. Uh, they they were just kind of embracing um, the the thought of uh, being executed because at this point it was just just want to be put out of their misery in my in my perspective uh of because like i said i go back to you know what i would do and you know what i um what i would think if i was in a position i would just want to be put out of my misery um at that point because they were going on for so long um you know being tortured and uh, and everything um and uh, one of the powerful uh, one of the powerful moments in the movie uh, which is an underrated part of the scene uh, you can't find it on youtube i've tried um it's a very short scene 
Uh, it's when Wantanabe comes out to address the uh, prisoners, and he tells the prisoners that uh, uh, President Roosevelt uh, had died, and everyone is just standing there, and he doesn't. they don't know what to do. But then there's this one person, uh, one of the POWs, that just falls to his knees and starts bawling. Uh, that, to me, was really uh, uh, one of the most powerful scenes in the movie. Because after being starved and um, dehydrated and worked to death and tortured and beaten and everything, uh, that, that man right there still had enough energy to you know, let out his emotions. Because in the beginning of it all, you can see that the soldiers were, you know, going through the motions and, you know, they, you know, they cried and they um, uh, were angry and everything. But by this point uh, in the movie and by this point in time and the real story, um, I could just imagine that they didn't have the energy to do uh, anything uh, except breathe and walk. And that guy just had the you know energy. I mean, I know it's I understand it's a movie, but I mean, it just uh, you know thinking about you know the real perspective of it, I just think that was a really powerful part of the movie. Um, and again, it's a very short scene, um, so there's really not much they can do with that. And they can't really, I can't uh, say that I wish they made it longer because there's really nothing else uh, there to make it longer. You know, I don't think there was any. Um, anything extra they could have done to make it longer. I think it, it was just perfect uh, for the time it was. Uh, so, um, anyway. Uh, so, getting back on track. Uh, I've gone off track several times there. <laughs> um, so, while they were standing in the water in the river, um, like I said, they were surrounded by Japanese and they were ready to be executed. Um, they all heard a plane. Uh, this was also depicted in the film. They heard a plane. The plane spotted them in the water and basically indicated that the war was over, that the Americans had spotted them, and the Japanese uh, withdrew their attempts uh, to, uh, or their, they withdrew their plans of execution. And so uh, Watanabe did slip away from the camp, which was, uh, or before he was found by the Americans and remained in hiding for several years, which was also depicted in the movie. Um, in the movie, um, Zamperini goes up to Watanabe's um, his room, and he only finds uh, a stick that he was beat with, and uh, his bed made, and several uh, belongings of Watanabe's on a shelf. Um, but Watanabe had already left. And again, he did remain in hiding for several years. And it was actually known that uh, Watanabe was actually 23rd on the list of MacArthur's, uh, General Douglas MacArthur, uh, his most wanted uh, war criminals. But after the war, and then, and then there was a couple, you know, I think a couple years went by, and uh, uh, Watanabe was never prosecuted by the United States for his actions in the POW camps. So basically everything that he did uh, as a um, commander of a POW camp, he was never prosecuted for. Uh, all the torment that he gave, um, which America and Japan did make a deal. Um, it's on the top of my head, I can't remember it now, but um, 
there was some kind of deal between the United States and uh, Japan um, for peace, so uh, which included Watanabe not uh, being prosecuted for his um, for his torment and all his actions in both POW camps on any on any of the prisoners, not just Zamperini, because um, the movie the movie shows. Um, more of the relationship between Watanabe and Zamperini, uh, which Watanabe did target uh, Zamperini a lot. Um, but uh, in the movie, it basically only shows the relationship between him. There was only, I think, one scene um, where Watanabe beats a prisoner um, halfway to death because he found uh, some information inside the barracks. Um, that were uh, there were American pieces of information that the uh, Allies were getting closer to the Marshall Islands, and uh, the guards found it. And Watanabe beat the soldier that had the information, like I said, halfway to death. And that was the only that was the only scene that um, I think it was the only scene that shown Watanabe beating on another prisoner instead of Zamperini. But in uh, the real uh, story, Zamperini did beat on a lot of prisoners, as I, I mentioned them. And uh, but it is true that he did target Zamperini a lot, and uh, and yeah, and he had reasons for it. Um, he was just he was jealous of his rank. Uh, he was a he was an Olympic athlete. He was famous, and he just took he just took pleasure out of it. And he just didn't like them. So that, to him, that was his reasoning. So uh, anyways, guys, uh, I'm going to go ahead and end this segment right here. Uh, we're 15 minutes into this one. Uh, so I'm, like I said, I'm trying not to get past two hours. Uh, we still got two more seg segments to talk about. I'm going to try to skim through those. And we should be done. And uh, this next one is going to be talking about We Were Soldiers. Um, so stay tuned guys, stick with me. This next one is going to be a lot of fun, uh, a lot of good history with it as well. Um, like I said, this, this will contain spoilers, but this, these movies are kind of old. Um, like I said, uh, Unbroken was, uh, published in 2014, which is about six years from now. Uh, We Were Soldiers was about 2004. Some are around there, and uh, Sergeant York was 1941. So, if you haven't seen the movies yet, uh, oh well. But um, the spoilers I'm giving you will give you um, that sense of urgency to watch it. So, for the for those that haven't watched the movies that I am talking about today, so um, and I highly encourage everyone to uh, watch these movies. So. Anyways, I will uh, see you guys in the next segment, and... So let's go right into this. Um, I'm trying to skim through this, as I've said probably a million times already. 
Um, so this next one, this next movie we're going to be talking about is We Were Soldiers. Uh, the book is called We Were Soldiers Once and Young. Uh, we Were Soldiers is a movie directed by Randall Wallace, starring Mel Gibson, Barry Pepper, and Sam Elliott. It is based off the true story and book We Were Soldiers Once and Young, which was written by Lieutenant Colonel Harold Moore and Joe Galloway, in which Mel Gibson portrays as Colonel Moore and Barry Pepper as Joe Galloway. Uh, so the movie starts with the French Mobile 100 being ambushed and completely wiped out by NVA troops with the main Vietnamese commander saying, kill all they sin and they will stop coming. Uh, but this is not entirely true. Uh, the French Mobile 100 was ambushed several times but was never completely wiped out. And it was never confirmed that Nguyen uh, On, I think that's how you pronounce his name, uh, the main Vietnamese commander in the movie, uh, participated in any of those attacks. Um, yeah, so it starts there and then uh, and then shifts on over to the uh, opening credits. And then it talks about the Pentagon and how they select uh, uh, Harold Moore to get into uh, the bottle of the law drain. So uh, when I introduce uh, uh, Harold Moore, uh, we find out that he's a, a very devout Catholic, uh, which uh, it was depicted in the movie very, uh, not very, yeah, very seldomly, uh, especially in the very beginning. Uh, they, he prays a couple times uh, with his family. Uh, he talks about Jesus a few times uh, during the uh, battle scenes. So, um, but there was a scene shown where um, uh, Colonel Moore has a heart-to-heart -heart conversation with uh, with uh, Lieutenant Gagan, uh, Jack Gagan in the movie, uh, in a Catholic church and prays to Jesus Christ about their upcoming mission. Uh, it's, it's inaccurate. Uh, it never happened. Um... It was, it's just a whole, it's a total Hollywood, uh, scene, which is expected, um, by Randall Wallace and, uh, Mel Gibson. I mean, people know about Braveheart, how terribly inaccurate that was, and some of his other movies, um, probably such as, like, The Patriot. So, um, good movies, but horribly inaccurate, uh, which I know there is... I have some Scottish friends that uh, tell me that they hate uh, Mel Gibson because it portrays him very badly and what <laughs> and, and what happened. So uh, they're not very happy with Mel Gibson. So uh, anyway, so yeah, we got this movie, <laughs> um, but it's a lot better than Brave Braveheart as long as far as the accuracy goes. So I guess it was just kind of to, to make up for that. Um, but this part here, when he was, uh, in the church, uh, with, uh, Jack Gigan, he, uh, never prayed with him in the church. Uh, he did, have, uh, Gigan was a real person. I don't think Jack was his, uh, first name. Um, but, uh, as far, and I don't think that, uh, Colonel Moore and Gigan had that, uh, tight relationship as they shown in the movie that they did. Um, but, uh, yeah, so this part was, I mean, it just never happened between Gagan and, uh, Moore. 
Um, but there was a few times in the movie where uh, uh, Colonel Moore mentions uh, General George Custer leading the 7th Cavalry. Uh, it is true the uh, General Custer was a um, obviously a general um, for the 7th Cavalry, and he did lead the uh, 7th Cavalry into the massacre of Little Bighorn in 1876, almost 100 years before um, this battle happened. Um, but uh, moving on here, it is true that uh, Sergeant Major Plumley was a tough, thick-skinned World War II and Korean veteran that made four combat jumps in the 82nd Airborne during World War II and another in Korea. Uh, his demeanor and his attitude seeming seemingly accurate in the movie uh, according to the sources so um, if you've seen the movie you know exactly what I'm talking about um, but for those that haven't Sergeant Major Plumley uh, is portrayed by uh, Sam Elliott I'm sure you know who Sam Elliott is if you don't just look him up and you'll know who he is I guarantee it um, but uh, Sam Elliott plays as Sergeant Major Plumley, and he plays this very, very tough guy um, that was uh, just he didn't like any he didn't like anybody. Uh, there was a few times where he told uh, his men to shut up, or you know, among other things, uh, just very tough and grumpy old man. Um, so. Uh, as far as we know, Sam Elliott perfectly portrayed, uh, Sergeant Major Plumley. Uh, Sergeant, and, uh, Plumley's nickname was Old Iron Jaw, so that kind of fits the bill there. <laughs> um, so, in the movie, uh, Bruce Crandall was an Army helicopter pilot of a UH-1 Huey. Uh, his nickname was Snake or Snake Shit. Um, pardon the French there, um, but which is true in the real story. So um, there's a scene where they're playing baseball. Uh, they're not in a war yet, but um, they're on base and they're playing baseball. And then uh, Colonel Moore at, and goes and sees uh, um, Crandall, uh, Bruce Crandall, and. Uh, and he introduces himself, and his and Crandall's wearing his uh, helmet, and it says snake shit on there. Uh, so, uh, so that part, I, I kind of wondered about that anyway, uh, if that part was true, and it was true. Uh, his nickname was Snake or Snake Shit. Um, again, pardon the French. Uh, so, it was also shown in the movie that Crandall took over from being in the troops. For bring, from bringing in the troops to medevacking troops from LZ X-Ray. So LZ X-Ray was the uh, landing zone that uh, they were that they did land on uh, when brought into the Battle of Lodring Valley, and they fought over that for about three days, and uh, it was very very tough. They were surrounded pretty much the entire time, and the uh, medevac choppers. The, refused to go in there because the uh, the uh, landing zone was hot. They were shooting. There were uh, helicopters were, were were taking major damage, 
and uh, the first medevac choppers um, refuse to go in there when the heavy fighting occurs. That part doesn't really um, wasn't really brought in, and uh, there was a scene where there was. Trano brings in the troops, and then there was a you know, it was about two medevac choppers, and uh, he tells the medevac choppers to follow him in, but it doesn't go to the point where um, Crandall basically tells the medevac choppers to um, that he's taking over or whatever. It, it just kind of it just kind of happens throughout the movie, and you never notice it. Um, so, um, there was another part, uh, the, after the first night, um, this was, during, this was in the movie, um, that this officer got really mad at Crandall and said that he led his men to a, into a hot landing zone and basically got his men killed and, uh, he was pushing them around and Crandall pulls out a gun on him and gets all mad. Uh, as far as that goes, I don't know if that's true. Um, doesn't, there's really no sources. It doesn't sound like that would really happen. Um, just kind of a Hollywood type scene there. Just kind of bringing, uh, more of the audience and stuff like that. So, um, but anyway, so, uh, Crandall evacuated more than 75 troops during the 16 hour flight day. Uh, it is true that he flew in ammunition and supplies for the fighting troops and that how and that his helicopter was unarmed so he was so medevac choppers are not armed uh it's just it's a helicopter that's supposed to bring in you know keep as much space as possible uh so that the wounded can get on and then that the uh, supplies can stay on and stuff like that and so um and there's another part to this movie that I'll get to in a minute. That's kind of confusing. It's in the movie, but it never did happen in real life. So, uh, just stay tuned for that part if you want to listen about that. Um, <laughs> uh, so, Crandall was uh, awarded the Distinguished Service Cross, but then he eventually received the Medal of Honor for his heroics by George a or George W. Bush, not H.W. Bush, George W. Bush in 2007. Um, so, moving on, there is a scene. Uh, it is shown... Uh, of Gagan and uh, Private Godbolt uh, making a two-man attack against a group of NDA Godbolt and uh, Gagan retreated and uh, Godbolt was shot in the back and G Gagan went back to save him but was also shot and killed while picking him up and trying to take him back. Uh, it's partly inaccurate. Um, Gagan did try and save uh, a down American African-American soldier um, not sure if Godbolt was his name or not, but, uh, he was down and Gagan saw him and, uh, um, he was shot and killed, um, in the process of getting out of his, out of his foxhole. So the two never actually made an advanced attack against NBA soldiers. Um, it was just, uh, an African American soldier was, uh, shot. And Gagan got out of his foxhole to try and save him, and he was also shot, too. Um, moving on again, uh, it's true 
that Mrs. Moore and Mrs. Gagan deliver telegrams to the newly widowed wives of the fallen soldiers in the Battle of La Drain. So this part of the movie is uh, pretty as a pretty powerful scene. It basically shows uh, Colonel Moore's wife and uh, and Lieutenant Gagan's wife um, receiving telegrams. Uh, it was at first. Uh, there was a telegram, and this the mailman um, was trying to find the address, and he couldn't find it, and he knocked on her door, uh, Colonel Moore's wife, uh, her door, and it scared her so bad uh, that he thought, or she thought that he was trying to give the note to him that, you know, basically saying that uh, Colonel Moore had died, but he was just trying to find an address, and... Uh, then she basically said that if there was any more telegrams to give it to her and that she would take them. And uh, so, and it, it, actually, it actually happened. Um, Colonel Moore's wife and uh, Lieutenant Gagan's wife, who were friends, um, delivered the telegrams to the uh, wives of the fallen soldiers in the Battle of Laudrine that served under uh, um, Hal Moore. Uh, in a short scene, a soldier jumped onto a live grenade to save the lives of other wounded soldiers around him. Uh, this is true. Um, it's a very, it's another short scene. It's a very quick scene. Uh, he just, there was a live grenade being thrown. And uh, he saw it and he just threw himself onto the grenade and he died. And uh, this is true. Uh, Charlie... Uh, McManus was his name. He was a real person that did this, and he was awarded the Medal of Honor for his uh, act of heroism. Uh, <clears throat> but in the same scene of the movie, uh, Sergeant Major Plumley told Joe Galloway that he couldn't take any pictures lying down moments before he took the man or told the men uh, to prepare to defend themselves. And he said, "This is true," according to the author Joe Galloway of the book. So this was all happening in the same scene. So. Uh, so to start in chronological order, um, Joe Galloway was a photographer that was sent to, um, I th well, he wasn't sent, he volunteered to go over there and uh, take pictures of, you know, the battle and what was going on and showing people, uh, show the world in America specifically what the war was like. And so... Uh, while the fighting was happening, uh, he was lying on the ground, and then uh, this also happens in the movie. Uh, Sergeant Major Plumley just comes over and kicks him and tells him that he couldn't take any pictures lying down. And then they're all in defensive position. They hear the whistles from the uh, the Vietnamese around them, and uh, in the movie, uh, Sam Elliott or Sergeant Major Plumley, whichever one. Uh, Cox is 1911 and says to, to prepare to defend yourselves. And this was true. Uh, again, according to Joe Galloway, uh, who uh, was the co-author of uh, We Were Soldiers Once Again. Uh, so the, the biggest mistake of this movie, uh, or the biggest inaccuracy of this movie, um, was the most epic scene of the movie was the final battle where... Harold Moore led a bayonet charge against the NBA that had prepared for a major attack. As Moore and his troops charged the hill to, in, to the NBA camp, 
Crandall and other pilots intervened with armed helicopters and mowed down the majority of the NVA, while Moore and the 7th Cavalry cleaned up the rest, therefore ending the Battle of Laudrin. This is an entirely inaccurate. Uh, Moore did have the troops fix their bayonets and lead a movement, but the NVA had moved out before they began advancing. So, therefore, they made no contact with any uh, reinforcements or any um, NVA soldiers during their, uh, during their advancement um, from LZ uh, X-Ray. Uh, the book tells the story of the ambush that occurred the day after while the soldiers were marching to uh, LZ Albany. Uh, when they figured the fighting was over, uh, Ladrang was is still a comp- yeah, still a controversial in the outcome due to the amount of he- heavy casualties on and losses on both sides. Uh, one can consider it a draw between the two armies. So that's the problem uh, with Mel Gibson. Uh, it's kind of to be expected of of um, Randall Wallace and Mel Gibson. Uh, they have to have a happy ending. Uh, because the real life happy or the real life ending wasn't as good as it was in the movie, uh, not near as good as it was in the movie. So the movie um, has them uh, fixing bayonets. They lead this uh, charge. They kill everyone in their path. They head up this hill. The NVA camp is there, but the NVA troops are ready for them. They've got machine guns and all these guns lined down. And as soon as the troops are coming up the hill, it looks like they're going to be demolished. But uh, like I said, all the helicopters come up and they intervene. And here's the and here's that confusing part that I didn't understand um, uh, earlier was when I was telling when I was talking about Crandall uh, and his helicopter being unarmed um, in that final scene. Uh, the final battle scene, Crandall was uh, piloting a helicopter that had two miniguns on the side and uh, rockets and everything. And when it never happened, um, I mean the whole the whole thing never did happen. Uh, they didn't go up this hill and they didn't blow up all these NVA troops and everything. It wasn't as glorious. Uh, and it was actually the day after was when they uh, encountered resistance, and uh, they suffered a lot of a lot of casualties. And uh, some of this day still think that they lost the battle uh, via Vietnam. Uh, they argued that they had lost the battle in America, and argued right back to them. And uh, it was all about a, it was all about the body count. Whoever had the most bodies totaled up, uh, you know, lost the battle. So, um, yep. Uh, so that's it for that one. Uh, my rating for this one is probably going to be a solid eight. Um, and going back to the Unbroken movie, I give that one a nine. I didn't um, mention that earlier, uh, but I give Unbroken a nine out of ten. On my list um, because you know I just give it a, I give it a solid nine because the, the accuracy is there um, but as I said there's some there's some uh, inaccuracies in there there's some parts of the I think there could have been some uh, important parts of the book that could have been included in the movie 
but um, and I, there were some things in the movie that were kind of twisted around. So I get that I would if it wasn't twisted. If there were some parts of the movie that wasn't twisted around, um, I would have uh, I would probably give it a ten out of ten. But I mean, still nine out of ten is really good. Uh, uh, we were soldiers. I give it an eight out of ten. Uh, there's a lot of inaccuracies there. Um, but it was very action-packed to say the least. I absolutely loved the book. I loved the movie. Um, I can watch it over and over. And <laughs> um, yeah, uh, so that's going to be it for that. Um, so my next movie I'm going to be talking about is Sergeant York. Uh, this is a, a lot older movie. Uh, like I said before, this is a movie from 1941 starring Gary Cooper. Um, it really differs from Unbroken King We Were Soldiers by a large margin because this was so um, so old. And, of course, uh, the technology just wasn't, it just isn't there because it isn't comparable. But for what they did have back at that time, it, it truly is a great movie. And it really depicts uh, one of the great heroes of uh, American history. So stay tuned, guys. I will be back. And uh, we'll be talking about Sergeant Alvin York next. And hopefully we'll be done here in a minute. So just stick with me and we'll, we'll get through this thing. <laughs> program again thank you for listening we are fixing to conclude this episode so as I said like three times in this episode you can find us on Apple Podcast Spotify or anchor.fm if you want to make a podcast program then go to anchor.fm and create your own program. It's it's really easy. Uh, it's free. It doesn't spend one red cent of it. Um, I can I'm able to do all this stuff on my laptop. Uh, very easy. Um, so if you guys are interested in doing that, it's totally free. There's the main thing you got to do. There's no promo code. There's no nothing along those sorts. Just sign up and get it going. All right, so here we go. We're going to be talking about Sergeant York now. Uh, Sergeant York is a hero, does not have a book. Um, I don't think he has a biography or any, um, not a famous biography at least, uh, like uh, Laura Hillenbrand. And he uh, never released his own book, uh, like in We Were Soldiers. But, however, he does have the movie Sergeant York portraying his life. Um, so, uh, Sergeant York was released in 1941, starring Gary Cooper, portraying as Sergeant Alvin C. York from World War I or The Great War. I also have an uh, episode called The Great American War, which covers World War I. Uh, so, 
Uh, Howard Hawks directed the film. Uh, this goes into depth of York's personal life and military career and acts of heroism. The real, the real Alvin York wanted only Gary Cooper portraying him in the movie. Cooper originally turned down the role when offered, but York finally contacted uh, Cooper personally to plea with him, wherein Cooper agreed to star in the movie. So, Gary Cooper was originally uh, offered the part to play as uh, uh, Alvin York, and uh, but he turned it down. And uh, there, and there was, and before that, uh, after a little bit after uh, what happened, uh, for years producers and directors are trying to get a movie about Alvin York's life, but uh, and his uh, military career. But uh, Alvin York said no. He said, and I quote, "This uniform is not for sale." Uh, it took him about. It's almost been, what, 20 years before he finally caved in. He finally said yes because uh, at this time, 1941, World War II was happening. Uh, it was a good uh, tool to use for uh, recruitment and everything, and he felt it was perfect, or not perfect timing, but it was uh, it was his sense of duty to uh, come out with this movie and inspire people. Uh, especially the men uh, to enlist and uh, to not kill people but to save lives and do that uh, do the work of his country so um, but he felt the only way he would do that is if uh, Gary Cooper starred as him and he got what he wanted and the movie was made so uh, in the movie Alvin York was uh, the first of three children. Uh, his mother, uh, yeah, his mother, so it was only about four people in the house, um, which is not true. Uh, some of it wasn't true. Um, the real Alvin York was only, was the third child of 11 in his family. Um, but it was correct when the movie did not show his father. His father died in, I think, um, 1913, I think, uh, if I remember correctly. And uh, so Alvin had to uh, raise the younger eight kids and because uh, he was now the man of the house. And uh, Pastor Pyle in the movie uh, was actually a real pastor who mentored him. Uh, so, I won't get too much into uh, Sergeant York's life. I've tried uh, getting into it, but I, it's, not as, it's not as interesting uh, as I thought it would be. But, his military, but uh, his military career, on the other hand, was. And also, I, again, um, I don't want this. I'm already at an hour and a half of recording, so I don't want to put too much because I already figured I had kept enough. So I just wanted to get down to the nitty gritty on this one. Um, so anyway, so during boot camp, uh, when York enlisted, it was true from the movie that the, the captain and Major Buxton tried to convince York to accept the promotion to corporal, uh, having to kill when they mobilized to France and having 10 days for a little to think about his decision. So Major Buxton was a real person, and so was the captain. 
they uh, set him, they set him aside in uh, in their office and talked to him about taking the rank of corporal. But uh, uh, Sergeant York, well, it wasn't Sergeant; it was actually still Private York because uh, he hadn't even been promoted yet. But um, he uh, he told him no. He didn't. He was a he was a pacifist. A pacifist is someone who doesn't want to fight somebody. They would rather just uh, pass and let it be. Uh, he didn't want to have to kill anybody, um, and which was known as a conscientious objector. And uh, but he came to the conclusion at, after the major and the captain gave him ten days for a little to think about. It, he went back home. He talked to his pastor for uh, a few days, and then he sat up on the hills and overlooked the valley, and he just pondered his decision uh, and read the Bible. To which he came to the decision of taking the uh, rank of corporal, and he would uh, go to war, and uh, he would kill if he had to. So, but the movie depicts only the part where uh, where um, Alvin York uh, just sat up on the hill and uh, overlooked the valley uh, from uh, dusk till dawn. So. It never shows Pastor Pyle uh, and Alvin York giving Bible studies to each other to figure out answers. And uh, but like I said, uh, just like the just like the real story, uh, as was in the movie, um, Alvin York decided to come to the conclusion that he would do that. He would do what he has to to defend his country and uh, for his family, because those are the because those people. Across the sea are the ones that are trying to threaten that liberty and safety of his family. So, if uh, in York's unit, um, yeah, in York's unit, all of the characters were real people in the unit. Uh, they were contacted by the producers and demanded, and uh, the real uh, soldiers in York's unit demanded to be accurately portrayed. Although in the movie, uh, the man named Michael Ross, a.k.a. Pusher, was not a real person in York's unit. So everyone in the movie uh, that was in York's unit was a real person. Uh, they, the, real per the real people didn't star as themselves, of course, because by this time they were too old. Um... um their names were real, and they uh, they were actually on set and uh, and made themselves be portrayed very accurately. So everyone except uh, Michael Ross, um, the funny guy that was uh, nicknamed Pusher. So in the war scenes of the movie, it is true that York and American troops came under heavy machine gun fire after advancing from the trenches. Uh, in the Argonne Forest, uh, but York and his unit got behind enemy lines and captured a company of Germans, but it backfired when the front lines turned their turned their uh, line of fire onto York's unit, killing the majority of it. York was the was then put in charge and moved all the way around the machine gun nest and took them out one by one and saved his unit. Uh, York eventually captured 132 Germans, 
killing more than 20, but the movie shows York uh, carried a 1903 Springfield and a German Luger. But in the real battle, uh, York was using a 1917 Enfield and a 1911 Colt 45. But sources say that they had to use a Luger because they couldn't get the Colt uh, 45 to fire the blank cartridges. Which was kind of weird for me, because uh, I watched this movie growing up as a kid, and then I watched uh, um, Sergeant York trade his 1911 for uh, a German Luger, and I didn't understand that part, but now I do. Um, which is all just movies junk. So, uh, that was the only thing that was really uh, inaccurate about the uh, whole battle scene, was just because uh, York was... Uh, in the movie, he was using a 1903 Springfield and a German Luger. When in the real battle, he was using a 1917 Enfield and a Colt 45. Which would seem, I don't know, uh, I would think that they would switch out the the uh, Enfield, or the, the uh, Springfield to the Enfield. I mean, I don't know, maybe it's an American thing because the Springfield was an American-made rifle and the Enfield was a uh, British-made rifle. But the infield beat out the Springfield by a lot. The mechanics on it was just too advanced. Uh, the uh, the bolt, the bolt action was just way too quick, very much quicker. Um, so the movie shows that after the war, Alvin York was uh, awarded many medals from the United States, including the Medal of Honor, and recognized by foreign governments such as France for his uh, heroics and valor. And this was this was true. Uh, he was uh, awarded the president. Oh, whoops, messed up. He was awarded the Medal of Honor in 1919 by President Wilson, and was recognized by President Johnson after his death in 1964. And he, uh, I can't remember what they were. And he won a lot. Of, he won way too many medals. Uh, well, not way too many, but uh, way too many me uh, medals for me to remember. Uh, but it, it was some, uh, I guess, the highest decoration for from the French army and I think the British army. Um, so he was he was really uh, actually recognized by foreign governments. Um, so in the post-war epilogue, York was offered endorsements in a farmhouse and a farm for he and his family. Uh, the real story has it that York declined the endorsements, which also happened in the movie. Uh, in the movie, he said that he didn't want to make any money off of the, uh, the terrible acts that he made in his mind. He, uh, in his mind, uh, killing people was bad. He didn't want to kill anybody. Uh, he said that uh, the reason he was killing the Germans was because they were shooting at his men and they were dying. They were just dropping one by one. And uh, for him, that for the you know, for the machine guns to stop, he had to kill him. And uh, he hit, and he said the entire time that he was uh, shooting, he was hollering them to stop, but he, but they weren't stopping. So he, had, so he did what he had to do. And so he didn't take pleasure in killing uh, the Germans, even though they were the enemy. And he didn't want to make any money off of it, uh, for sure. So he declined endorsements, uh, in which that, again that was depicted in the movie. But uh, realistically, he, did, he was not offered a farmhouse, but he did receive a uh, farm, and which was heavily mortgaged for years and uh, caused financial problems for the York family for years. Um, 
So, yeah, again, in the movie, he was offered a farmhouse and a farm, and uh, but in real, realistically, he was not offered a farmhouse, but he got a farm, and but they uh, spent years uh, down in the hole with it. So, definitely not a good thing there. Uh, so that's all I have for my notes on that one. Uh, I don't really have much else to say on uh, Sergeant York. Um, these movies are, I, I highly recommend you watch them. Um, the Sergeant York movie kind of gets boring at first. There's not really a whole lot going on. Uh, it doesn't really get uh, good until the, um, until he enlists in the military. Um, but that's just me. That's just me being a young guy and not having much patience. So, um, whereas Unbroken and Looper Soldiers, it gets down to it like right, right at the very start. So, um, but regardless, great movie. Uh, I enjoy all of these movies. I still watch them. I've watched them for a long time. I've watched them more than once. But, um, uh, they got a decent rating on uh, Rotten Tomatoes. Um, I think the best one, I think, may have been Sergeant York uh, with the 88%. Uh, let me look up here. Interesting. Okay. Um, so I'm not sure. Um, the problem with uh, the Unbroken movie is that it does have a sequel movie to it. I haven't seen it yet. I was wanting to, but I've seen the uh, I've seen the trailer for it many times, and it just didn't look uh, interesting because it looked low budget. Uh, face it talks more on the it's more of a religious movie. Uh, a low-budget religious movie. Um, the thing that really turned me off uh, from the movie was the guy that played Louis Zamperini in uh, the Unbroken movie was uh, Jack O'Connell. But in the second movie, the sequel, uh, Jack O'Connell does not play uh, in the movie, which really kind of it. It really kind of sucks. Um, Maybe one day I'll watch it, but uh, it doesn't really, it just basically goes in depth of how his journey was after the war. Uh, he had, he had uh, very bad nightmares about uh, the bird, and uh, but he devoted his life to God, and he, um, he was a born-again Christian, and, uh, and his, his family grew up Christian, but again, uh, if you remember correctly, if you remember, uh, Sam Perini wasn't grown up to be, you know, uh, a well a well mannered kid. Uh, so he was born he was born again and was a Christian. And he said that after that, he didn't have any nightmares about the bird. And everything that he has was credited to God for saving his uh, for saving his life during uh, his tenure as a POW. Um, so on uh, uh, Rotten Tomatoes, fifty they give uh, Unbroken at fifty one percent, which I think is a little low. I'm not sure if they're talking about the sequel here. Um, 
but it says 89% like this movie. Uh, we're going to switch on over to the soldiers and find Raven Romero real quick. Um, we Were Soldiers has a 63% on Rotten Tomatoes um, and 91% like the movie. Sergeant York has uh, has an eighty eight percent on Rotten Tomatoes and eighty nine percent like the movie. So actually, Sergeant York for an older movie has a has a higher and better rating than Unbroken and We Were Soldiers, um, which is shocking to me, but uh, it is what it is. So. Uh, but anyway, I mean, still, it's you know, it's still a pretty good uh, percentage. Um, I think Unbroken was a little bit too, a little bit, a lot too low. Uh, the movie is just absolutely fantastic uh, as far as accuracy goes. So uh, I encourage anyone to watch those movies. Um, if you haven't seen them yet, they're really good. I love them. I uh, own. I don't own Sergeant, Sergeant York, but I own Unbroken and We Were Soldiers on DVD. Uh, you can also find We Were Soldiers on um, on Hulu, I think, and Amazon Prime. So there you go. If you ever want to watch that on uh, any uh, live, live streaming network, uh, you can watch it on those two. So, yeah, that's going to be it for this episode, guys. Again, thank you guys for listening to the uh, All America program. Thank you for tuning in. I really appreciate you guys. This, ep- this episode was a lot of fun to make. Um, again, I'm sorry if I annoy you with the uh, constant uh, us and stuttering and stuff like that. Like I said, I'm not a Glenn Beck or I'm not a Joe Rogan. Um, but uh, I wasn't born, you know, on a stage and a lot of people have stage fright, I guess, which, you know, uh, this isn't really stage fright, but um, it's just, I'm not, I guess, I guess you have to teach yourself how to talk to, uh, I guess, a camera or a microphone or something like that, which, like I said, Glenn Beck and Joe Rogan have been doing it for a really long time, so they know how to talk and not do all the bad habits and stuff like that that new people get into, so, um, Anyways, thank you guys. I uh, hope you guys enjoyed the episode as much as I'm, I loved making it. I uh, really do hope you guys uh, listen and uh, you know, listen to more for more episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Anchor, and uh, really watch those movies and read the books. Um, they're really good. I enjoy them a lot. I show it to my kids, even though they're like two years old. <laughs> Uh, my wife has watched them more than once, um, and my kids my kids will grow up knowing about this stuff. They will uh, understand the uh, horrors of war and everything like that. I mean, some people could consider that abuse in some way, but uh, no, it's history, and everybody needs to know history. And in my opinion, everybody needs to understand uh, what history was like, and if you know, if we forget, then history will repeat itself. Uh, we're already looking at those days right now, so uh, God forbid it gets any worse. So anyway, uh, thank you guys again, and I will see you guys next week on another episode of the All-American Program.